Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. This episode is brought to you by someone who knows someone you know. You're next. And welcome back into Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, episode 11, with your hosts, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy here is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. Uh, this is episode 11, and we are going to talk about uh, urban legends, and we should say a special shout out to those of you joining us for the first time. Uh, Kirk, we uh, we went to Startup Connection uh, a couple weeks ago when uh, when you all listened to this, and uh, met some interesting people. Yeah, and hopefully uh, all the people we told that should listen to this are actually listening to it, uh, if they're not, then apparently they didn't listen to us. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why they're not listening. Wait, that's starting to sound really circular. Sounds kind of like our intro, actually, to this episode, just being kind of circular reference. Yeah, it does. Uh, so our, our topic today is urban legends, and uh, we're going to talk about two different aspects of this. One is uh, who owns rights to sort of these um, organically developed collaborative projects that just sort of, I don't know, they crop up on the internet kind of on their own. Yeah, they kind of they just appear and then take on a life of their own. I think because either somebody creates a fun universe that isn't really a property. I and mean, we've talked a lot about this show previously about the idea of like fan fiction, wanting to sort of jump onto known properties, you know, work with things that are out there. I think a lot of the urban legends that you sort of encounter are things where they really grow organically. There's no intention of making a property in the beginning of this, yet people want to join it and want to be part of sort of the same movement. Yeah, certain things just seem to capture our imaginations. We're going to talk about Slender Man in a little bit. Uh, and the other topic we're going to cover is debunking uh, the flip side of the urban legend, which is, uh, I-, I call it internet folklore. It's just <laughs> things that you see people say all the time online about the law that's just wrong, or or at least less clear than they make it seem. As we commented about it, it's what we get to do in this one is actually have fun being Mythbusters, yes. which I think is a show that we're all addicted to and everything else. Unfortunately, we can't build medieval weapons, and we don't have an explosives expert, so we can't necessarily do that. Uh, we joked about the idea I was going to try to show up with a thermal detonator, but I don't even know what one sounds like, so I'm not even sure we could edit in a, set, a soundtrack explosion. That's an idea for a future show, bring in an explosive expert. I'll define some topic that requires an explosive. <laughs> that would be fine, yes. Alright, so uh, Internet Urban Legends, we'll start with that. Uh, it's sort of a combination of you know conventional urban legends, uh, folklore, and, and just your, your garden variety hoax. And it can be hard to separate, I think, uh, one from the other. So the uh, Slender Man I mentioned in the introduction is the, the main example of this. Uh, so by way of background, if you've never heard of it, Slender Man is a, a fictional paranormal Lovecraftian type I of character. I think character. Lovecraftian is yeah. a good way to describe it. Uh, he was created in the, the Something Awful Internet forums. Uh, that, that was a thing. It may still be a thing. I don't know. But it was part of a Photoshop contest to make you know everyday photos have some element of the paranormal to them. And I, I don't know who did it, but somebody Photoshopped into these black and white photos of just like kids playing on a playground, this really tall, like 10-foot tall, faceless figure in the background wearing a suit. And in some pictures, he had like tentacles coming out of him. That's the Lovecraftian aspect of it. Uh, and it just sort of took on a life of its own from there. For whatever reason, this character captured people's imaginations and, uh, and just blew up into a, a whole mythos unto itself. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, and it's, you know, we're used to sort of seeing this. I think there's a, a real desire for there to be sort of the the supernatural universe beyond our universe. I mean, regardless of whatever you think in conjunction with there being other universes or there being things we don't understand. It appeals to our sense of wonder. And I mean, yeah. when, like when you're first reading a new book or like exploring a new like property, a new universe, and you just don't understand what the heck is going on, that's when it's the most fun. Yeah. And a lot of, I think a lot of science fiction, a lot of sort of things, um, you know, really sort of focus in on that. I mean, you joked about it. You 
recommended to me a few weeks ago that I actually read Snow Crash, which yep. I did finally read in conjunction and Stranger with Things. And so, <laughs> I'm watching Stranger Things, which I just got DV- season one on DVD, so don't spoil it for me. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I need to get an excuse to sit down and actually binge watch it. But I think one of the things like in Snow Crash is when you like read through it, there's this huge discussion of what all this history means. And I think there's a part of us that kind of wants that to be true, that it is this kind of cool extra thing that's out there. Um, and it's a real common theme throughout, I think, a lot of science fiction, throughout a lot of just generally fictionalized works. This idea that there's something like beyond what we can see and that somehow we then end up getting exposed to it. And part of us, I think, kind of tries to make that real, even if it is something that's just simple, even if it's something we know is fake. And that's potentially where this sort of Slender Man thing came from, is we have sort of the basic idea of are there aliens out there, are there supernatural out there? And so what we have suddenly is somebody basically creating these photos, which should be evidence, which should be something we can see beyond just a, a, a fiction, that we kind of look at and say, hey, what if this was real? And now we want to make it real. So we actually go and expand upon the idea of it being real. And, and sometimes it's, it's much more elaborate than just a photo. So do you remember the uh, the fake alien autopsy video from the <laughs> 90s? Oh, yeah. And that's I think the great thing about the fake alien autopsy video is it's admitted that it's fake. Everyone yeah. knows it is fake. But I, I got in so many arguments with X-Files fans who insisted it was if it wasn't real, then it was based on real footage somebody saw at some point. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was another Roswell alien uh, situation. Yep. But it, it doesn't have to be uh, internet videos either. I don't remember if the, I think the 95 video I found online, the alien autopsy one. But like the, the Bigfoot Patterson video. Yeah. I mean, that was recorded in the 70s. Well, let's go, let's go all the way back. And what about War of the Worlds? That was a radio show. Oh, That's yeah. the equivalent to us. Um, you know, coming out here and saying, hey, guess what? Aliens are invading. And, you know, people who tuned in in the middle of the presentation, not realizing that it was a work it's of science fiction and thinking, you know, the tripods from Mars had arrived on Earth and were destroying things. Well, let's talk about Slender Man. I think that's probably the, the most, it, it may be the most well-known internet folklore right now. There's lots, there's lots more out there, but that's the one that's probably the most interesting because, one, it itself borrows from a pre-existing mythos, the Lovecraftian uh, horror uh, universe. Yep. Uh, and, and the folklore around it has really taken on a life of its own to the point that, if, if you haven't heard about this, um, there have been a number of violent incidences, mostly involving teenagers, uh, and the most famous one probably being uh, a couple of 12-year-olds in, I think, Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, tried to murder a classmate to appease Slender Man because they'd read online that if they didn't, he would come murder their family. I mean, I think the, the biggest concern here you bump into is the everything on the internet is true phenomenon, um, or the because I read it on the internet, it's true phenomenon, that you know we've, we've reached the point, and I remember hearing a great quote actually from somebody where they said, what's the difference between generations. And they were talking particularly about legal research, but I think it's a general sort of phrase that's really useful. And the comment with it is, is they said, you look at people who are in the generation X or sort of older than that, and they say the internet is a tool for research. You talk about people who are sort of millennials or later, and the internet is the tool for research. And I think that dramatically sums up the way we use the internet is we're we're really reaching this point that the internet is this sort of monster source of information. And one of the concerns with it is, is separating the real front, the fictional from the non-fictional. That's where you you run into the sourcelessness problem where you find stuff online and sources are almost always either made up, unverifiable. It's, it's really difficult to know where things are coming from and how much stock to put into it. And if anything, that's one of the reasons why I think people trust Wikipedia. It 
such a big community of people who care so much about it being accurate that when I when I read stuff on there, uh, I, I usually just start with the assumption it's probably reasonably correct, but also it's usually sourced. There's usually footnotes you can go find yep. out where the information is coming from. Although so, I do think a lot of it depends on what it is you're looking up. I mean, if you want to look up what is the you know chemical composition of water, yes, it's probably accurate. Yeah. If you want to look up you know what happened yesterday on yeah. you know some famous person's Twitter account, then it may not be. Or any major political candidate's Wikipedia page <laughs> exactly. is full of truths and half tr- half truths. Well, let's let's talk through Slenderman. So this started on the something awful forums with uh, somebody taking I think vintage photos and photoshopping something into it. Uh, so so right away we have a potential copyright infringement. We're here again. Yep. Yet another copyright issue. Yep. We seem to be bumping into this a lot. And and interestingly enough, part of that is because I think copyright, in many respects, pervades our lives. I mean, we've talked about it. We sort of hinted at it before. Copyright covers so much of what we do, and particularly when we're talking about anything creative, any kind of creative works, which is what it's designed to protect, we bump into copyright a lot, just as we get into anything associated with geek culture, because in some sense, geek culture has a fictional component. Well, I think most people probably, it's the easiest IP to make. You know, patents, you have to get a patent application on file. Trademarks, you have to offer or sell something in commerce. But copyright, you know, you sit down and write an email, there's probably some level of copyright in whatever you wrote down. Well, there is, I mean, by definition. As soon as it's fixed in form, yeah. So it's it's the easiest to make, and it's probably why it, it comes up so much. Uh, so, but once you once you Photoshop Slenderman into some antique photo, um, have you infringe any copyright rights in that photo that belonged to whoever took it? Yeah, I, probably. I mean, there's definitely a possibility as to what it is. I mean, you presumably have made a copy of the photo in order to be able to do your photoshopping into it. Now, being an antique vintage photo, the copyright may very well have run already in conjunction possibly, with this photo. Yeah. I think that's a lot of what we'd be getting into in conjunction with this. Just say the copyright rules don't apply the same to everything because there have been multiple versions of the Copyright Act over the year, the most recent being 77? 70, uh, late, late 70s, 70s. basically. Uh, um, and so things before that are covered in, in some respects, but not, not all the aspects of the new law carry apply to previous things. In fact, there was yep. just a, a case um, uh, out of Florida, I think, the Florida Supreme Court uh, issued, issued a ruling that certain certain copyright matters that were previously left to state law, which maybe sound weird, uh, were, were not copyrightable. So I forget what exactly it was. I think it was uh, it was something to do with pre, uh, pre-1970s music rights, if yeah, I remember correctly. And I'm yeah. trying to remember exactly which band it was. Yeah, that we should probably The protection put of the sound recordings is, is, is weird, and it, it changed in the 1970s Act. And before that, it was state law, and so it's kind of a mishmash. Um, it's, you know, the further we get away from that, the less it applies to things. But there's a lot of, of, of oddness. Uh, what was it we were talking about? The, that one Christmas movie that they forgot to renew the copyright on? So, oh, wonderful. it's a wonderful life. Yeah, you get to play it a million times every year because uh, I forget if it's the broadcast rights or one of the sets of rights wasn't properly renewed. So. Yeah, and that's, there's, again, I think the, the thing to keep in mind with it is that when we're talking about copyright, the copyright has changed and the co- coverage of copyright has changed over the years. We've touched on this before. So when we're talking about, you know, do you infringe a copyright in this, particularly when we're talking about like you're using a vintage photograph, vintage has a lot of meaning. Are we talking about a photograph from, you know, you know silver plate negatives from 100 years ago? Or are we mean. talking <laughs> about a vintage photograph from, you know, somebody's Kodak, you know, Kodak Instamatic that was taken in the 1970s, which, let's face it, not under today's, like digital, you know, you know, camera rules is is about as vintage as it gets. I mean, yep. it's still used paper. I mean, my goodness. Oh yeah, um, or Polaroids. I got a whole box full of Polaroids somewhere in my parents' yeah. basement. Um, okay, so uh, but modifying the photo, you're 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 reproducing it obviously because you're posting it yeah, online. Presumably, you're reproducing it. You're displaying it publicly because you're posting it online. You're distributing copies because you're posting it online, uh, and then. 
are you preparing a derivative work? Are you modifying it enough just by photoshopping in this creepy dude yep. to qualify as a derivative work, or is it just a reproduction? Well, it's definitely, I think, a derivative work in some form. I mean, obviously, you have a reproduction, but you have altered it. Um, you know, yes, you've all you've done is add something in. You haven't necessarily changed the subject matter, but I think you can still say it's a derivative work. When we get into it, there's also the level of what level of derivative work. Is this a derivative work where, yes, it's subject to its individual copyright, potentially, because you've added something to it, but it's still subject to the underlying copyright, or is this something where we bump into the level of a transformative derivative work where really you've created something wholly new? Even though it is based upon the original, it doesn't qualify as a copyright infringement. It's effectively a fair use under what's called transformative derivative work. And that's probably what the authors of these things care about the most, is do they acquire any rights in the new stuff yep. they've added? And and the the added Slenderman depiction, I mean, standing apart from the photo, should be copyrightable to the extent a copyright yep. could exist in it. Um, but is there any copyright in the photo itself as modified with the with the with the Photoshop? Again, I think there probably is, you know, because the fact of just how you did it, um, you probably had to do more than just add in Slenderman. I mean, any people who do decent Photoshop work and stuff like that, you have to add in shadows, particularly for a vintage photo where like yep. the the quality of the picture is different. And you got to make it look uneven and add like crackling and stuff like that. Yep, and and you got to make sure that it actually fits as to what it is. I mean, one of the common ones they always talk about with Photoshopped images is people like forgetting to add shadows. Oh yeah, or you know, messing up because they have you know some some in indication of like light sources in the wrong place. Uh, I mean, that's a really common thing I think you get into with Photoshop photos. What I think is really interesting is we're talking about the idea of, you know, vintage photos and making these changes. Obviously, this is something when we talk about Photoshopping images, it used to be kind of, hey, you had to know how Photoshop works, you really had to do this. Let's face it, the iPhone 10, we've got components coming in here which are designed basically to do this. I mean, they advertise them. So now we're getting really interesting as to, hey, could you actually be potentially using, you know, a modern device that basically is doing this stuff for you, that's fixing these kind of problems. Now we get into the, hey, how much of this did you actually add and how much of this is essentially just a machine reproduction? You, you made an interesting point about the, the extent of the, the copying for how we think about derivative work. So, and I, I, I think it, I, I kind of, this isn't the legal framework, but it's how I conceptualize when you modify something else that belongs to somebody else, like a photo like that. So if, if you're making like minimal changes, you know, touching things up, maybe here or there, uh, altering the color, converting to black and white. To me, that's not really usually a derivative work. It's just a garden variety reproduction of what, what's already yeah. there. It's, I mean, technically, it probably still is a form of a derivative work. It but yeah, effectively, be. it's still a copy. But I think to be uh, to be a derivative work within the contemplation of, it's called Section 106, but it's, it's basically the rule that says that the author of the original is the only person with the right to make derivative works. Uh, usually, the, the new work has to be separately copyrightable or contain separately copyrightable material. So, you've got to have at least enough you've added to it to to add separately copyrightable ideas, which the Slender Man character clearly is. But if you modify it enough, you go beyond just derivative work and into, it's basically a whole new thing, which yeah. gets you more into, well, we call it fair use, but basically it's, it's radically changed so much that it's not really derivative of the original anymore, it's wholly original. Yeah, again, we use the phrase transformative derivative work or transformative fair use a lot of times to refer to these kind of things. And basically it's saying, you know, yes... Arguably, there's some copying which occurred here in order to do this, but what you did is create essentially a wholly new work out of this, which really is its own expression, has nothing really to do with the original, and what does that mean? And one of the big problems I think you get into a lot of times in the law and a lot of these questions is where is the line between a derivative work and a transformative derivative work or a transformative fair use? And I think it's one of those things that's just very, very hard to pin down. I mean, it tends to be a case-by-case -case basis, tends to be specific, and there's just no good, easy way to determine what it is. Um, 
And, you know, that's, again, I think this is a value of sort of, you know, going through these types of analysis and looking at this type of stuff. We're talking about something in conjunction here with the Slender Man story, with, you know, a story which is wholly fictional, which was made up in conjunction with this, and then became even more fictional and even more relevant. Do we have a transformative fair use that came in someplace after the original photos? I'd that, say we probably did because, like, so you have the photos, which is just people photoshopping stuff. Yep. That's that's straightforward enough. But then you have the other people who saw these, and you know, it, it captured their imaginations, like I said before, and and they started to write uh, background material. They started to develop this character, and so now you've got the photo, which a, a whole separate set of issues applies to that. But now you've got person B who comes along and doesn't know how to. Photoshop anything, but they can write, and so they make up a background for the character and these these you know the, the internet folklore about them that inspired these 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 kids to to commit yep. crimes. Uh, do you a st- what's the extent of protection or or rights that person B would have, and does person B need any permission from person A? This is kind of our Glorfindel discussion from last time, yes. almost right. Like we're taking this one little piece and then expanding it, but is it really based on the original? Other than what this character looks like, we're just kind of making up all this background stuff that's really got nothing to do with the original work. Yeah, and I think the other thing with it is, is that you you look at it and say, you know, so using the example like character copyright, which again we touched on with, touched on with Glorfindel. We have a character that has no background. I mean, at this point yeah. in time, it's it's literally just an image. It has nothing as to what it is. It just appears in an image. It was entered in a particular contest. Can that be you know? Can that be infringed by sort of expanding upon it? Particularly where the expansion upon it, the sole reference in many respects is that it's the Slender Man, which may not have even been a name that was given. Yeah, that could have been by the original author. Tacked on by somebody else later. I've yeah. looked into it uh, closely enough to to know. Uh, but it's an interesting point. I, I think character copyright probably doesn't really exist for just a depiction in a photo like that. Well, I mean, most of the times the court has said you sort of need something beyond it. I always kind of put it as it sort of needs a personality. Yeah. At the same time, they have. Found character copyrights and potentially very not well described characters and other things a lot of times it's all it takes is a name and that's why I kind of focused it on the Slender Man name and maybe there's something to it. You know, did who gave it the name? Who gave it the name Slenderman? When did that catch on? Well, then I've, we talked about this on the way over. I've I've always wondered if the Enderman from Minecraft was related somehow because it kind of looks like it's yep. it's taller. It's got really long limbs. It's kind of creepy and ethereal. Although and, it does uh, occupy and, the end, which presumably the is where it gets the name Ender yeah. from. But I mean, Enderman, Slenderman, it's close enough. I, I don't know. I've always wondered if that was connected somehow. But Minecraft may have come out early enough that that that's that, you know not not inspired by who yep. knows. Um, you know, another possibility, well, so so person B, you know, writes some narrative work, and then person C, say, expands on that. So person A says, oh, this is called the Slender Man, and he's from, you know, some, some paranormal universe. And then person C takes person B and the stuff that they've written and expands upon that further. Now, here's the interesting question. Can person, technically, can person C do that? Uh, and that, that's a tough one, right? Because... The, you know, we're back to the idea of expression dichotomy we talked about, uh, gosh, probably a couple months ago now. But copyright protects the expression of an idea and not the idea itself. Yep. So what is the idea behind the Slenderman? What's well, this creepy, ethereal creature that sort of appears in the background of photographs and is just, just you know, weird. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's not much of an idea. That's, that basically describes the vast majority of, of Lovecraftian-inspired work, right? So, you know, can person C, by, does person C, by expanding on person B's narrative, really infringe anything, or are they just re-expressing a similar idea? It's a really, really fine line. 
Yeah, and I think that's the, the the takeaway potentially in conjunction with this when we're talking about these idea of sort of these organic urban legends and who owns rights in these is this is an incredibly difficult question. Well, it's going to become relevant someday because at some yep. point somebody will want to make a movie about this and who owns the rights to these characters yep. and these ideas, if anybody. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is it's you may be talking about a large number of rights holders. You may be talking about a large number of rights holders who don't necessarily know what rights they hold. And you may be talking about a large number of rights holders whose rights are dependent upon the rights of others as yep. well. When we start talking about these kind of things, that's where I think you get into, you know, a discussion of these kind of things. Now, can you do a documentary in conjunction with the Slender Man? Yeah, you can. That's perfectly acceptable. I think HBO acceptable. did one. Yeah. Uh, it was about the, the murder or the yep. attempted murder in, in Wisconsin specifically. That's perfectly acceptable because at that point in time, we're not using the mythos. We're reporting news, yeah. so to speak. Well, this is where, like, people often uh, – not often, I shouldn't say, but people sometimes question these these doctrines and and ask, you know, why do we care so much? What, what's the big deal? We, we talked last week about law school exam questions that raise these tangled fact patterns, and, you know, and, and we've said on here before in in you know, there's there's technical violations, but in business practice, most of these things are never going to be enforced, and 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 that's true. But when it matters is when somebody else shows up and they have found a way to make a whole lot of money off of your idea. Yep. Like I said, someone a movie studio is going to want to make a Slenderman inspired movie at some point. Maybe it's already happened for all I know. Uh, and, and that's when it really matters because if you're the movie studio, you've got to clear this idea. You have to make sure that you don't have some some person sitting out there on the internet laying in wait who's just going to come sue you and say that you infringed their copyright. Yeah, and, and I think that's the, the sort of takeaway from this, and I think one of the things, and this potentially leads us into our next topic, which is about internet urban legends um, and IP urban legends, is there isn't an easy answer to this, and I think that's Again, it's probably something you guys have already heard repeatedly on this show. Yeah, there's an easy answer. These would be short podcasts. Yeah, they'd be very short podcasts, but it's also, I mean, and and people talk about, you know, why they hate attorneys because they can't give a straight answer. Well, part of the reason is, is because there isn't one. You know, these are complicated issues. They involve a lot of different interactions, a lot of different questions. What does that mean? And unfortunately, and I think that leads us into our next topic in conjunction with this, which is internet IP legends. A lot of times people do try to reduce IP to relatively straightforward rules. Usually unsuccessfully. And Mm -hmm. almost always unsuccessful. I always joke about it where it's the, and I said, the, the biggest thing I always hate is I'll watch, you know, like some of these, you know, political news pundits or something along those lines. I'm like, let me simplify it for you. And I always said, let me translate that to, let me make it wrong for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's run through some of these. So my, I think the one that I, I hear the most is the poor man's copyright where I, I, <laughs> or I, poor I, man's patent. Pat, yeah. I, I wrote it down and I, and I sent a letter to myself. So now it's copyrighted. Well, I mean, I guess that's true. It's copyrighted, but not because you mailed it to yourself, because you wrote it down. Yeah, it's because you wrote it down. That's actually what makes it copyrighted. You fixed it in form. Um, so all, therefore, all the mailing does is give you a date. You know, it's evidence, basically. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's basically what the, the poor man's copyright or poor man's patent, where you hear this idea of I'm protecting something by basically doing this. The idea is that the date is definitive. We know what the date is because the U.S. government has verified it by the postage yeah. stamp or by the, the postmark. The problem with this is, is ultimately what it is, is evidence. What you're also going to have to do is open that envelope and somebody's going to have to testify as to what was in the envelope and that that was what that date was. That was what the postmark said associated with the date. One could also testify that I have this piece of paper that I wrote it down on which has a date on it and I put the date that was the actual date on it. Yeah, It's, it's the same n- level of evidence in many respects. It's just a matter of how persuasive it is. Obviously, the postmarked envelope, the jury is more likely yeah. to say, okay, well, I mean, you have a postmarked envelope. So that must be the yeah. date as opposed to, do you remember correctly? Did you make this up? Are you lying? And, and patents are a whole different issue because... It used to probably matter, but with the America Invents Act, now it's a first-to-file system. Yep. So the fact that you had 
possession of the idea back whenever you mailed yourself, not as relevant as it yeah, used to be. Yeah, there's still some requirements as first to invent, and there is the idea of derivative work that somebody actually derives their you know, uh, invention from something you had so you can prove that they had it beforehand. Not as big of a deal. And interestingly enough, the United States Patent and Trademark Office actually effectively used to have a poor man's patent, which was the statutory invention disclosure, yep. or SID. And what the SID was was basically a way for you to say, hey, look, I don't want to apply for a patent, but, but I I'm going to give this to the patent office to prove an invention date. And that was definitive. That actually was oh, yeah. the poor man's patent way of doing it. Basically, what you did is you burned the bridge by pointing out you had it by them then having a reference to it that was definitively a date. Well, there's a lot of fair use mythology, too. I'm just, <laughs> just going to run through these. Okay. Fair use mythology is probably, I think, the biggest internet urban legend. And, and just to oh, by point far. out, by, uh, to say in the beginning, we've touched on fair use repeatedly in conjunction with this. Fair use is a balancing test. It's something where there are numerous criteria you have to go through in every single cases. There are no per se rules of fair use. What the internet loves to do is come up with per se rules of fair use. Okay, so I've seen if you use 200 words or less of a, of a literary work, then that's okay. No. No, not, not, not correct. It, it might be. It might not be. Yeah. If the literary work is 201 words long, you've infringed almost yeah. the entire thing. Yeah. There's there's cases that have violated for three seconds, three words, stuff like that. Oh, and music especially. I mean, yeah. sampling is a, is a whole separate thing. Okay, similarly, if you use 10%, I've seen the 10%, 20%, 30%. I've seen 3%. If you use X percent of the original work or less, then then it's okay. No. no. Uh, it may be, it may not be, but just because you haven't used that much is only one factor. How much have you taken? Uh, it's okay if you cite the source. No, 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 that's plagiarism. That's plagiarism. We've talked about that before. Uh, I love this one, too. I don't know how many times I've heard this. Well, I'm not making any money. Yep, that's one of the four factors yeah. to be considered in that's conjunction with fair use. It's not the only factor. You can still you can still infringe a copyright, and it can still not be fair use, uh, even if you're not making any money. Yep, and um, you still got three more. So keep in mind, you've got twenty five percent of the argument effectively falls in your favor. Seventy five percent has still not been decided. And even then, I'm not making any money. It could still be a commercial use. Yes, it could be. Yeah. Uh, so I see this a lot. I found it unused net, so it's public domain. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the argument of things being public domain on the internet is one that you bump into a lot. And I think one of the, the real problems that you get into with that is the internet makes it very easy to copy. You can download images, you can just do stuff, whatever you and want to do. And very hard to enforce. So people just assume if it's out there and nobody's had it taken down, then it must yep. be okay. And there are definitely sites out there that are purposefully sort of set up licensing schemes where, you know, hey, if you want to download it for this purpose, it is okay. That's because they have a user license agreement in the background. They have something specific with it. But I think that there's a lot of idea that the, inter- the internet is free and everything on the internet is free. And that's far from the truth. And no. I think that may be one of the biggest urban legends that's out there is the sort of because it's on the internet, it's public domain. And the answer is no. Because it's on the internet, it's published. That doesn't mean it's public domain. Uh, a related one is, oh, I got it from a friend of mine. And so if anybody's in trouble, he is. <laughs> well, yeah. Who depends on what you, what you do with it. Like if your friend sends it to you, that doesn't give you any copyright rights that that person didn't have. So yep. I guess if somebody sends you something and you're just like, oh, I don't want that, and you just delete it, then you're probably okay. You haven't yep. done anything. Uh, and, and you, you can't never Stop somebody so from one sending of these issues is the right. copyright there. Right, but you know if but if you if if you take the position that because I got it from somebody else. Uh, I can just blame them for anything. No, you're still responsible for your own actions. Yeah, and again, part of it's the where are the copies made there. You know, the person may have made a copy and sent it to you, so that's their violation. But when you have that copy, what do you do with it? Do you use it for public display? Do you do these things that are prohibited for somebody other than the copyright holder, one of which is making more copies? Um, there's other ways you can infringe. Again, I think the public display is the best example. If I take it and get it from a friend that I public display, that's my infringement. I'm the one who public displayed it. Exactly right. Uh, this one actually is not complete mythology. I see this a lot. I can make a backup copy for my own records. 
Yes and no. Yeah, I, and I it, think this this is one that I think you're rarely going to be challenged on, and it's probably moot in most cases. This usually applies to software, yep. uh, but virtually all software license anymore, including Express, you can make at least one backup copy for archival and purposes. And that's really the key there. This is not a fair use defense. This is not saying that I'm entitled to this because of fair use. Most software licenses, wouldn't say all, but I think most software licenses specifically allow you to make backup copies. What that means is, is that yes, there is protection in conjunction with it. Now, there is also under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Act, certain things you can make archival copies of um, based upon specific exceptions in the act, which say you're entitled to do that. The issue with it is those are narrower than a lot of people think they are. I I suspect copyright, uh, software licensors include the the, the archival right. I suspect because they want to carve out fair use and say, we don't want you relying upon your fair use rights. Um, okay, so we got a couple more fun ones. Uh, I love this one. The infinitely renewable pharmaceutical <laughs> pen. If you've seen, I mean, it's in like, like I've seen the New York Times. I mean, it's not the New York Times. I've seen re- reputable news sources publish things talking about pharmaceutical patent renewals. Yep. There is no such thing as a patent renewal. Yep. It lasts it for a exist. certain amount of time and it expires and there's no yep. way to extend now, it. Now, there is a maintenance fee which has to be paid to get the full term. Those yeah. have to be paid along the course of the But that's the opposite. That's, you're not even going to get the full patent term unless you yep. pay more money. The key thing to keep in mind about a patent is that when a patent is filed, anything that issues from that patent has a term which is 20 years from the date it's filed, period. It cannot be extended. Now, it can expire early if you don't pay maintenance yeah. fees or something along those lines. What these people are usually talking about is a, is a sort of lack of recognition of moving technology. What it is is that people will potentially get a patent on one thing, and then what they'll do is they'll patent an improvement, but as a commercial product, we don't necessarily see it moving from the original to the improvement. We simply see a continuing product. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's been it's been renewed. The answer is no, it hasn't. No. Because the underlying first invention is actually no longer covered by patent potentially, even though the second one is. It's just from a commercial point of view, nobody cares about the first one anymore. Well, pharmaceuticals in particular, you may have like a, a minor improvement that's separately patentable. Yep. Well, now everybody wants the slightly better drug, but nothing stops a, a generic manufacturer from making the original. Yep, and this is done all the time. I mean, you walk into Walgreens and find any drug with wall in front of its name, and those are essentially the generic versions of something whose patent has fallen. Now, they may not be exactly the same as the commercial product on the market. They are exactly the same as the commercial product originally exists. They have to be, essentially by definition under the FDA um, and the rules for generic drugs. But a key to keep in mind is that just because it says it's a generic version of X doesn't mean that it's actually a generic version of Y, which is a successor to X. Uh, How about this one? I I got in a big argument on the internet with somebody about this. So an oil company, (laughs) suppose bought the breakthrough patent for the electric car battery technology so they could bury it and prevent anybody else from producing it. I love these, when people sort of come up and do these comments about the idea of buying patents in order to destroy the technology. You can't bury a patent, first of all. It's impossible. And the thing to keep in mind about patents, by definition, if a patent has been granted, so if there's a patent out there, the disclosure of the patent is in the public domain. That's what the word patent means. Patent versus latent. Yeah, it's not even covered by copyright. You cannot cover a patent document by copyright. So basically, if I go out and I write a, draft of a patent application, I file it with the patent office, and it issues by, as a patent, the physical patent document is not copyrighted. I can make copies of that for all I like, and that's by statute. What you bump into and what these people are basically saying is they buy up the patent and prevent other people from doing it in the patent term. 
Yeah. The so key. they basically mm-hmm. saying they they were saying I bought the electric car battery technology. You know, I'm I'm big evil oil company X. Yep. So that I could never produce it myself, and since I own the patent, I can stop anybody anybody else from doing it. Here's the problem with that theory: this patent was not renewed. The maintenance yeah. fee was not paid. That so, means at this point in time, that invention is, can do it. Yeah, is truly public domain. Yeah. And if somebody wants to, I mean, and I, I tell people this every so often, if you want to go find something fun to do, like just, you know what it is, go raid the patent office. Go look in the patent office. Go back in time to patents that are 30, 40 years old. Anything which is in those patents for the most part, you can freely build and nobody's really going to be able to stop you. Now, you can't necessarily modify it because somebody may have gotten a patent to the modification, the sort mm-hmm. of things we were talking about here. But you can freely build these things because the patents have all expired. It's actually interesting when you talk about the idea of using the patent office's technology. One of those great things, whether urban legend or not, whichever way you want to sort of look at it, um, supposedly one of the things that actually happened at the end of World War II um, was actually the looting of the German patent office in Berlin, which actually originally occurred by the Soviet forces because they got there first and was promptly followed by the Americans. To follow up with that, one of the things that they know was looted, um, supposedly from the German patent office, was the design of a circular-winged aircraft. Hmm. So basically an aircraft which used a circular wing in order to provide lift. Why is this interesting? Because experimental test aircraft from other countries are tested at a place in the United States called Area 51. (laughs) <laughs> so there's may a, have heard of it. There is a pretty good argument that actually what potentially was seen as a flying saucer in Area 51 is actually a German experimental warplane looted from the German patent office. Let's talk about ownership myths. Uh, this happens with uh, software engineers a lot. So, well, my company doesn't own what I wrote because I did it after hours on my personal computer. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, conversely, my company does own it because I wrote it during work hours on their computer. Not necessarily. Now, Not the one thing about that is there's a special thing in conjunction with patents called ShopRite, yep. which is that basically if you use an employer's resources in the course of developing something, they may have rights in it. They it have doesn't a license grant them at least. a patent. It's yeah. a license, a special form of it. One of the things to keep in mind that there is some right there, and it's very specific and has kind of situational type thing you have to discuss what exactly it means I also I like this one uh, I had someone argued to me once that they they wrote an online game uh, based on an existing code base but since they had changed every single line of code uh, they no longer uh, were subject to the license for the original code base Ooh, uh, that sounds like to me that what they did is a really, really expensive, expansive derivative work yeah the question with it is is it a transformative fair use or not, and we're back to that place yeah. again. And with, with software, it's particularly difficult because sorting out what is sans affair versus what is actually original and creative in software is difficult. You know, if if you write a quick sort, there's virtually no IP in that because the algorithm's known. You can't you can't copyright an algorithm. That's a that's a process, and and, uh, and the expression to implement it is is necessary and rudimentary. There's no way around it. So, yep. uh, and let's do one more. Uh, I like this things you can't actually patent. I, another argument I've gotten into with people: some evil company owns a patent for the human genome. Nope. Nope. Nobody does. And th- it's actually, is the AIA, there actually is a specific prohibition to patenting human beings in the AIA. Um, it's one that you pop up occasionally, just even as a, as a patent, pro- patent prosecutor in today's world, they'll occasionally come back and say, what you've written is effectively patenting a human being. It's usually the actions of a human being is what they're yep. saying you patented. Well, not but- to mention, there's there's a bunch of exceptions to patent eligibility. Naturally occurring phenomena are yep. not patentable. Namely, the human genome, which yes. is presumably naturally occurring. All right. Well, we're running along here, so we're going to wrap it up. Uh, what is our next episode? Our next episode is the episode eight prediction episode. Prediction episode. So we're going to actually create some urban legends as to what we think is going to happen in episode eight. 
Um, we're also going to potentially talk about other sort of Star Wars, you know, related things associated with Episode Eight. I'm sure we're going to be, di- you know, dissecting trailers. We're going to be talking oh, about sure. the potential new trilogy. By Somebody the same was asking director. us why we talk about Star Wars so much. I, it's because it's going on, basically. Yeah, it's, I think a lot of there. the reason we do talk about Star Wars so much is because one, I think Star Wars has become a little more pervasive culturally. Did you, you know, see, by the way, that they're doing a? They just announced a new trilogy. Yep, that's what I was just talking about. I think we're going to talk yeah. about that a little bit next uh, yeah. next episode, just because of the fact that it's the same director. Yeah, Ryan is it Ryan Johnson? Uh, I they think did that, that eight, right, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, same guy did eight, and apparently they're very happy with his work. So that's the reason why there's going to be this trilogy that may bode well for episode eight. It may not. We'll yeah, see. We'll see. <laughs> well, and then I've been watching Star Trek Discovery too. I, I'm not caught up with it, but uh, I don't know, Kirk. You've been watching that. One? I haven't watched Star Trek Discovery. I have this problem of not having like most of the sort of cable or you know online systems. I mean, as bad as it is to be a geek, I mean, I can't watch Netflix. Well, he, that's why I made him buy the Stranger Things uh, DVDs and told me he has to watch that. <laughs> yeah, so we right. have season one. Uh, so uh, next time, uh, we're going to talk about Star Wars Episode Eight. If you have uh, ideas, predictions, or, or craziness you want to propose, uh, send it along. We'll talk about it. Uh, so if you, have qu- and if you have any questions, you can ask us on Twitter at LGGpod. You can email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and you will find us. If you like what you hear, give us a review. We really appreciate reviews. It helps other people find us. It helps us with SEO, and it helps us talk uh, the powers that be into giving us more money to keep doing Doing this. Yeah, so if you, the more you tell people that you like this, the more we are likely to keep doing it. All right, so we have the music. It's time to go. That is the, the official LGG podcast band, Lorem Ipsum and the Scriveners. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 